This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. Brian Tyndall, can you hear me? I can hear you. How are you doing? Not too bad. This is our fourth encounter. It's the first time I've seen you. Oh, yeah. Where's your picture? You don't use them? Oh, no, I do. I just forgot to hit the start video. All right, on. Do you ever notice that people, you, you, you instinctively, at least this is the case for me, form some kind of vague impression of what people look like, and then when you see them, it never in any way matches up. <laughs> yeah. As an I'm, artist, you tend to do that. I'm having that. I'm having that reaction with you right now. You're much, you're much more like, what's the word? You're much more chiseled than I'd imagine. <laughs> and that might be because you're, you're an animator. Yeah. And I, I just would have thought of you as kind of like a pudgy dude that sat around on a computer all day. No. But you're no, not. Uh, I saw a lot of friends go from healthy weight to terrible weight in just a matter of you know a year by sitting and not exercising and eating fast food and just terrible. I too, and I too sit at a computer all day, but it's weird. I have a weird... I have a weird lifestyle where I'll, I have, I call it ASD attention surplus disorder. Okay. Where I'll sit there. I won't even stand up for my desk for six hours at a stretch. And somehow it works because I'll, I'll do a, a hard workout at the end of the day. And I don't get grotesquely fat as a consequence. Well, I attribute it to that, you know? Well, I think it's just a balance of, you know, eating right, exercising right, and taking breaks and get up and do stuff. In fact, I had the when I was working at Pixar, the motion sensor lights in the for the room. We had our own offices, and um, it was about twenty minutes it went off, and I know that sitting there. If I can make that light go off, that tells me I haven't really moved in 20 minutes other than, mm-hmm. you know, my hands moving around a little bit, which happened all the time. So it told me to get up, stand up, walk around, come back, sit back down, start over. Because I was working, yeah. you know, 60 hours a week type work. And it uh, just terrible on your posture and supposedly – the damage that's going to be showing with all the people like, you know, my age has been on the computer for 25 years um, is devastating to the body. You know? oh. There's some hurt. divergence of opinion on that. I know. Yeah. It's well, here's what, why I say that. And maybe this is a minority opinion this guy had, but I'm 51. And when I was in my early thirties, I was having some back problems and, those have subsided. I've, I've hurt my back. I've had some back pain a couple times since then for very short periods of time due to deadlifting. But 
by and large, I've had no back pain except when it's been deserved. It's, I, I attribute that to probably probably because I got pack llamas to start carrying my meat when I was hunting. But yeah. when I told the guy what I the the when I had an MRI and the neurosurgeon looked at my MRI and we haven't, he's giving me a consult and he asked me what I did for a living. I said, sit at a desk. And he said, good. I think that in his mind, he was open to the idea that maybe I was a roofer or a builder or somehow use my body aggressively based on what he was seeing in the MRI, you know? And I know that's all from carrying me that my back got screwed up, but so I'm open to the idea that maybe being sedentary a lot of the time does save some tissue. Well, it's like, as long as your ergonomic setup is working for you, I've got one of these fancy pogo chairs that, you know, it forces you forces you to do all core stuff, you know, so you're, you're constantly, your adjustments are okay. Cause you're moving on this chair. That's basically on a big spring that looks just like a, you know, shock spring for a truck. And then the shaft goes through it, and then the chair can squish down into it. And then it also then pivots at the bottom. That what, helps. How much, do, what is this chair called? Oh gosh. What is it called? Um, so like find a name on it. Uh, doesn't have a brand name on it. Um, I can find the name for you, but it's yeah. I might want one of them. Them there fancy chairs you got. Oh, uh, they're they're so much uh, better for your core because it's it's little core corrections you're doing. Oh. Like, People people um, try to do the same thing on a, on a cheaper scale, and they sit on those um, you know round balls. Yep, and that does that does kind of like the same thing. It's really good for you. It forces you to you know so you're not being slouched over, so it allows you to sit sit up straighter. Oh, and then when you, you move gotta it, uh, well, I'll remind you because that I, that's yeah. something I should look into. People, some of the people I work with work standing up, and I can't think critically. Yeah. I can't think critically standing up. It's yeah, a tick, we. It's a we, tick I have. We had the ergo. That, desk. That's a, that's a very disadvantageous trait to have to not be able to think critically standing up. Yeah, that probably wouldn't be very good in a certain situations. Yeah, yeah. Um, and no, I can't think up, straight. I can't think straight while driving a car either, which makes me extremely dangerous on the road. Basically, the only time I can think clearly is at a. Comp- sitting at my desk with a computer but the idea of, of doing that and have it you know with a good chair yeah chairs and then you know i've got the adjustable uh keyboard stand that can slide in and out and tilt in different directions and then my monitor is a big you know i got a 32 inch uh wake on tablet here that you know i can adjust and is it one of those ones that's concave or convex, depending on how you look at it. Uh, the keyboard. Oh no, the monitor. No. I've got one of oh, those. No, big, I've got one of those big it's... concave ones. Or, oh, okay. If it, you look at if it's if it dips in in the middle, is that concave or cam, convex? 
dude, you should totally know this in your profession, shouldn't you? (laughs) I don't, I, you know, it's funny as, as an artist, especially a character uh, guy, I don't really know any of the muscles, any of the fancy names, any of the terms. There's a couple of them that I know and that's Mm. it. I just, I'm a visual guy. I look at motion. I can determine if I like that motion or I don't like that motion and, and start working on it. And I know that um, you have to uh, abandon art at certain times. Otherwise you can just keep tweaking and tweaking and tweaking and it'll never be done. For the sake, for the sake of our listening audience, I think it's important that we maybe take a second and we've hinted at who, what, your background but let's just lay it out explicitly you you are an animator you you used to work for pixar and now you still do some animation for films but you also have a clothing company called gulch gear a hunting a hunting clothing company called gulch gear yeah um so i I got into computer animation in 93, but I've been working on the computer and 3D stuff since 85. And um, I'm more of a, at Pixar, I was a character technical director, um, which basically I designed the characters from the 2D artwork. So I've worked with the production designer, the art. Oh, that's how that works. They start out with some cartoons and then you... Go from there. Yeah, you started with with drawings, and they can be simple. They can be, you know, a whole entire art packet, which is, um, you know, tons and tons of them. And then I designed. How do you get into that? Do you go to school for something like that? I got my degree in industrial design, and I just always enjoyed the design aspect of of designing, not the mechanical part of it. I'd rather look at the aesthetics and see. you know, how, how something looks and you ergonomically interact with it. Um, And you're a lifelong hunter. And that's what prompted you to get into manufacturing hunting clothes when you stepped away somewhat from the animation. Yeah. It's, it's something that, you know, I started out with my dad at probably four years old, him taking me out and hunting until, you know, I've got to be begun at what, six years old or something and then ran around you know as a typical kid is your dad still among the living yes he is both my parents are in fact they've been together for 62 years and they still live in michigan and oh really oh despite us having talked three times no 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 that's not true i'm remembering kalamazoo yep okay michigan state yeah yeah we talked a bit yeah. about your sister. Yeah. Went to school in Kalamazoo? Uh, no, they both went to Michigan State. Oh, they did. Okay. That's okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So, yeah. Fellow Michigander. That's awesome. Yeah. So, and we're about the same age. Yep. Um, so, I, you know, started in Michigan. You could start hunting with a bow at age 12 and... Oh, I got to interject here. My first piece of advocacy, hunting advocacy, 
I've, I had two, I did two things up until the time I was 47. And then I did a bunch after that. And when I was a uh, 11, I, I don't remember who our governor was, but I wrote him a letter saying that I thought I should be able to hunt with a bow. Yeah. And he wrote me back and said, the reason the law was the way it was is because most kids my age couldn't draw a bow uh, that had enough, heavy enough weight, heavy enough weight to kill a deer. Yeah. So anyway, I'm not going to get into the rest of that, but I just couldn't help myself. Go on. Yeah, no, it's, um, you know, the started hunting and you can hunt birds and things like that, you know, playing upland game. Um, I think at 12, well. right? Yeah. At 12, you could do that earlier. Just big game. You couldn't hunt until you hit 12 and, and 14. Oh, that wasn't um, my recollection. My recollection was, I can't remember my 12. I thought it was 12. I'd have been 12 for small game and archery and 14 for rifle deer. Deer was what? My, mm. okay, anyway, doesn't matter. Yeah, was 14 for uh, for shotgun. I was in shotgun zone, so anything below mm-hmm. certain, certain parallel lineup above Grand Rapids and, and lower, I guess they just felt that rifles would travel too far. Um, Does your old man still hunt? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been trying to get home for the last four years to be able to go hunting with him, but just haven't been able to. How old is he? Um, he'd be 85 coming up oh, here. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. My dad died a long time ago, but he was a lifelong hunter. But he died at 78, and that was in 2001. That gives you a sense of how oh. old he was when I was born, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My dad was 29 when I was born. Seems like people nowadays are having kids a lot later. So they're, yeah. you know, when their kids, when I, when I graduated, my dad was, what, 47. People nowadays, you know, when their kids graduate, they're in their 60s. Yeah, my dad was 47 when I was born. Oh, okay. Yeah. He had a family before my family, before my brothers and I. Okay. Yeah, no, I, um, you know, grew up in Michigan, um, worked my way through college, um, a miracle, but made it through, got a degree. <laughs> then, uh, and then so you, you got to have a degree. academically inclined? Oh, I, I can't, I don't test well. I yeah. can't. It's not that I can't. You seem like the sort of fella that would do very well at something as long as you're interested in it. But if you can't see the utility, you'd suffer. Yeah. Yeah. Is that accurate? Yeah. One of the industrial design professors that I had was a younger guy. Um, He was probably 42, but he was the head of Steelcase up in Grand Rapids. I remember remember that company. for, uh, For industrial design department. And he basically said, lays it out. He's, you know, he, he seemed like a party or two, but he was basically said, you know, Hey, your general education classes get C's in them. Just get it enough to pass. Don't put any time into it. You just, you just need the, the C in it. Um, in your engineering degree, um, you know, try to get at least a three point that, and then your industrial design stuff, um, you know, that's where you want to put all your time and money into an energy into that and, and try to four point all those classes. And that's exactly what I did. You got a two point, a three point and a four point 
in that, in that, in that order. And my, he must've felt like the, he must've felt as though people that were considering hiring you would only look at that component of your transcripts. They don't even look at the transcripts. They look at 100% of your portfolio. Oh yeah. Okay. I love, I love careers like that where the proof is in the pudding. It's like, can you do the yeah. job or not? Yeah. And that's, that's the, you know, like at Pixar, you Pixar was, was interesting because being a technical director, um, I was an outsider. I was more on the art side where they hired most of the hires came out of Princeton, Brown, MIT, Stanford, Texas A&M, Ohio State, uh, UW up here up north. So they were looking for the people with the highest engineering degrees in math and science. You know, not math, science, but math and uh, computer. Did you say where you went to school? Western Michigan. Okay. Yeah. So in Kalamazoo. Um, <clears throat> that's all I could really afford. Uh, I couldn't get into another school. Anyways, my grades were just, you know, I was a visual person. I think that's why I excelled at my job in animation is that it's all visual. Um, and I think that's part of the reasons why when I look at camouflage and camouflage design, um, I look at and approach the problem completely different than what other people that are designing it do and what other companies are doing. Um, yeah. So it, it makes a difference. Um, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, I have a photographic memory um, for certain things and then other things go right up and over my head and it takes me forever to retain it. And then, you know, just like go take my driver's license again. I just study and study and study and study. I don't test well. I don't get trick questions. Why? I don't understand the trickery they're trying to trick you with when they ask you, you know, not straightforward. Hey, when you come to a stop um, and you're going to turn, you know, or, or you're going to make a right-hand turn, do you put your blinker on 30 feet, 60 feet, 90 feet, 120 feet before? before? That's a straightforward question, right? It's a straightforward question. I wouldn't know the answer. I've never lived in a state where I had to take a driving test after where I got took it at 16 and never had to take another one. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I don't know if I had to take one because I was getting an Oregon license from a California. That might have been it. But mm -hmm. a lot of the things, um, you know, questions on on life and exam and, and, and testing in the world is, is they, they make basically, you know, trick questions. And I look at them like, well, that's part true. But then that's also part true, too. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not black and white. And those questions, you know, I really got to, you know, read the manual over and over and over and take take the the, the tests. And here's one question that I got. The only reason why I got it, because I didn't even really notice it in the manual. If a police officer is sitting there on a horse, waving his arm around in a circular motion, what does that mean? Mm. And was it true or was it, was it multiple choice? Or yeah, it was it? multiple choice, Okay, but all multiple out. choice questions were, you never, you'd be like, I have no idea. But there's one guy who goes, Oh, that means I forgot what it was. That I would have thought it meant go around. No, it, it completely something that doesn't even make sense. It's from the, you know, 1900s or whatever, when cars first came out, mm -hmm. they thought that was a good test uh, question to have on a test to trip up people. <laughs> I don't know if that's to trip up, because I, I just, I don't understand why on tests. So in school, my testing was, was very challenging. I had no stuff going in, but I'd freeze and panic and get, 
anxiety, I guess you call it. And I had a hard time, but yeah, I was a poor student. I was a poor student in high school. A decent, I was, I was good student in college, but not because I was smart, but because I was scared shitless about (laughs) being able to get a job at some point, you know? Yeah. I, but then it turns out there's, it turns out that there's some freaking thing in my brain where it comes to technical shit, detailed technical shit, which is what my job is. It's like a lot of computer programming, a lot of equations, and somehow because of this ASD thing, I do good at that stuff. Well, that's attention surplus disorder thing. Yeah, for for me, it's just being able to move information around, you know, that kind of character in the computer and and be able to do the modeling and then put all the control. I would love to watch, just sit there and watch you for 20 minutes just to get a Yeah, it can be, I I guess it could be boring, but some people are, are, you know, it's, it's relaxing to me. You know, I'm, I'm moving points in space. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. Do you ever smoke weed and do it? Nope. Mm. Nope. No. One of those yeah. things where you do, you do good if you had, if you. No, it's, or, it's, I, I have found that when you really want to do really good work, um, thought maybe, wow, that'd be really cool. You'd be really creative, but just same with, um, Drinking and, and trying to do something, you yeah. you think you're doing it well, but you're not doing yeah, it. Well. Yeah, yeah. There's that. There's that. Yeah. Sure. Your your ability to assess your performance goes to shit. Now, there's no way in hell I could do what I do, drunk or high. Yeah. But this podcasting bit, I do a little better with a drink. Yeah. Just I got one going right now. The scotch? No, it's Windsor, Canadian whiskey. Okay. My wife drinks, drinks, I never used to drink whiskey, and then my wife got me into drinking whiskey. You know, I, we, my wife and I, we got married in 2014, so about then I started drinking a little whiskey, and she likes the expensive shit. But I just recently realized that I liked this just as much. I was telling somebody, I may have been been on another podcast. I was telling people that telling someone that I think there's two ways to be blessed. You could have a lot of money, or you could have cheap taste. You know, it turns out I'm blessed in the latter respect. Well, I was drinking scotch and good like scotch. Good scotch? Well, you know, forty dollars, fifty dollars a bottle. Mm, of course, this mm-hmm. was you know, fifteen years ago or so. You don't drink yeah. it all anymore. Uh, no, I drink beer. Okay. I limit myself to beer and like hard alcohol. It just doesn't make sense because, like, with a beer, and especially if I know what I'm drinking, which is like Guinness or Foster's, what I drink, I know how much alcohol is in my system and how fast it gets out of my system. I could drive to a bar. I can have two pints of Guinness. I know that I have been there X amount of long time. I have a 0.03%. Well, you could do the same thing with hard alcohol with the poured Not shot. really if you're buying drinks at a bar. It depends if they're doing poured shots, measured shots or not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, when you're when you're at a at a bar that's being 
run by management where they're actually measuring things perfectly. And they do, if you right, go like right. order a $150 shot, yeah, they're going to pour that exactly one out. You know, <laughs> but if you're ordering, you a they, you know, they, let's say they put, um, you know, an ounce and a half in there and you do four drinks and you thought you had four ounces and really had six, you get behind the wheel. You're taking no, that makes, that makes there. sense. That makes yeah. sense. But your I, don't go level, to, I don't go to bars anymore. I used yeah. to be a bar fly. I just do all my drinking alone at home, which is even more <laughs> concerning. But drinking alone isn't bad. It's <laughs> it, you know, like going to a movie, bad. You know, by yourself, that that's bad. It's like that's, no, you, know, yeah, you, you just want to go see a movie. And your girlfriend or wife doesn't like it. You know, you go to the movie by yourself and say, you know, the heck with it. I'm going. <laughs> um, and you do it. And, you uh, you could justify it. You could say you had you were doing it kind of for work you know well i right off yeah right off all my tickets for movies cable um you know that's all i mean it is research because it's it's not fun necessarily to watch a movie with me in the theater i respect that i'm in a theater i shut the fuck up you know there's nothing worse Uh talking and you know stuff but when i'm at home watching i'm yelling and telling the screen of this is you know this and that because how could they let that get on screen how could that artwork be that bad or that bad of a just you know and that's the problem yeah you have a harder time suspending your disbelief yeah than other people here's here's a great example I'm, I'm, i'm i'm doing a photo shoot up here in the mountains and the photo shoot consists of me my camera and remote control right I don't have a team that I do it with. I do it by myself because I enjoy photography and I'm an artist and I'm good at composition. I'm good at lighting, you know, all the fun stuff. What's the subject matter? Like are you talking about your clothes? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm basically like all my photos that I shoot for my website and for my other stuff is how it looks in the field. Okay. That's really important to me that, you know, this is what it looks like in this environment. This is what it looks like in this one. And I tell, you know, my thing is there is no perfect camouflage. There is camouflage that works well in these couple environments and then works extremely well in this one. There's a lot of camouflage that only worked well in this one and it looks like shit in these other places. But, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm putting, you know, my gun barrel. I read this book once by Kurt Vonnegut. I think it was his last book before he died. And he's talking about how, you know, that real pixelated, like uh Colin Powell used to wear camo, that real pixel. Yeah, 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 yeah. The digital. He, he's, he's talking about that. He's saying he says something like, "I can't imagine an environment in which that makes one appear less as opposed to more conspicuous." And he says, "It's as if we're. It's as if the American army." is preparing to fight World War Three in a bowl of pea soup or something. Yeah. Well, I think, to me, military camouflage is more about recognizing whose side you're on. And that digital camouflage was very unique to our ally countries. And okay. Okay. That makes more sense. like a uniform than a uh, than a camel pattern. Oh hell yeah! Just like in the old days, the redcoats. You know, you knew who you were shooting at. You knew you weren't shooting at an American. You were shooting at a Brit um, because they wore red and we wore blue. But if we were both wearing red on a battlefield. 
man, you imagine how many friendly fire casualties we'd have. And I think that that be- those patterns infected the camp, the hunting camel industry, though, for a time. I don't know. Maybe they still do. Well, I, I, I think a lot of that is just marketing bandwagon. People get on, you know, it's like my camouflage, the way I try to design it is like I say, it's, it's a different, it's a different approach, a different idea. Um, than what other people but back on my, by just in that simple little photo shoot I was doing, we were talking about, you know, like me watching a movie. And, and of course I know how all these effects are done. I know all the behind scenes stuff, you know, cause that's, that's what I've done for 25 years. And I work with a lot of my buddies that we went out and party with all the time down the Bay area. Cause Pixar was down in, in uh, across the Bay and industrial light and magic, you know, George Lucas's company was across in, in San Francisco and San Rafael. And then in the Presidio, well, I hung out with a ton of those people, very small industry. And so we, you know, shop talk nonstop. So we go to parties and we shop talk. You know, those guys are partiers. And, uh, but when somebody oh, that, that, that's, that's a trait of an animator. Oh my gosh, Pixar. We had bars in every zone at Pixar. Oh, when I was in college and, well, late high school and college, I worked for an industrial painting company. And that was my first, that was the first time I realized that certain industries attract hard drinking sons of bitches. Man, people that are in the, in like the paint factories and, and water towers and stuff like that. Wow. Well, and you're kind of drunk all, you're high on paint fumes all day and then you go drinking. A lot of these guys would drink yeah. at lunch too, but anyway, oh, we, we I got bribed a fifth of a hundred dollar scotch to um, try to get my character Merida done quicker. What? Um, whoa, whoa, whoa! Back, back, help me out here. Help me out a little. Flesh that out a bit for me. Okay, so do you see? Do you ever see the Pixar movie Brave? Mm, is is what's that? That's one? The, what's the, that oh, one called? Ice or Frozen? Is there one called Frozen? That's a Disney one. I've yeah. seen that one, but I don't know. I'm a I'm a grown ass man. I don't watch cartoons. You got kids? No, I don't. Oh, okay. Well, Brave was a movie that I worked on. Um, I got to do the lead character on that called Merida. She was a little redhead um, bow hunter. I did see the one with the re- dragons. What's that one? <laughs> Which dragon? Oh, my my mother-in-law is a is a real how you say new agey sort of woman. And okay. She, she liked it. The, the, the way they ride on the dragon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Avatar. Drink- I oh, saw Avatar. that one. Is oh, Avatar? okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's done by uh, Weta Studios down in New Zealand. That is um uh probably one of the better studios there's like industrial light magic and then what uh there's a couple other good ones she um, was a real into avatar so i watched one with her but go ahead i'm interrupting you and i gotta work on fine. that oh well no that's cool um so i was taking this little quick photo shoot and so i'm just you know i've got a camera up there on a remote i got a remote control in my hand you can see it in all my pictures you'll see these black little thing or i'm holding my gun a little bit odd because i'm trying not to show that i've got a remote in my hand and, but I'm resting my barrel on this log, so I'm not free-floating it. And I know that that was, but that's the shot that I wanted to get because that was going to showcase the camouflage 
Um, and why, I does, why does having the gun on the log as opposed to just off of it affect how the camel appears? No, it affects how somebody who really knows guns views your photo and critiques it that I'd I rather we rather have the son of a bitch laying on the log personally. Well, there's 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 supposedly you want you never want your terrestrial barrel onto something when you pull the trigger and it's like okay really? whatever taking oh. hundreds of shots like that and killed hundreds of things with it. I'm not shooting a mile away. Everything that I hunt and kill is usually in dense forest and it's within 30 or 40 yards. My longest shot is maybe, you know, like I think the last longest shot I had was 19 yards at a bear. You're like a black bear specialist, isn't that? Is that correct? I am a black bear enjoying hunter. I hunt that's your that is your quarry. That's yeah, I love I love black bear exclusively or just yeah, it's that's all I hunt. I mean, I get a I get a bow tag for elk, which starts here on the twenty seventh, and then but I usually draw a late season cow tag. Which oh, is okay, so not exclusively. And you also you're but talking about book. probably going back. You're going back to hunt with your dad. You're probably talking about hunting deer there, right? Yeah, so that would be whitetails. Um, okay, or coyote comes across in front of me. It's going to be shot at probably, um, but. Yeah, I take a lot of I take a lot of uh, crap for not holding my gun in the ideal position. And no shit, I don't, I don't shoot. Wild. I, Who would care? I don't know. There's there's people that they I, I you know that's what one thing that I've learned really you know I, I I sit in all these hunting forums and I just listen to what people talk about and mostly a lot of it is what they don't like about equipment and what they don't like about customer service. And that's why I'm in there. I'm not in there to, you know, people talk about somebody bad mouth my company, you know, you just got to sit there and take it with a grain of salt and you'll get other people that come in and defend it that are wearing my stuff. But I noticed if you try to debate with certain people, it's just like trolls and all they want to do is fight. Yeah. Are toxic. I yeah. I almost had to get counseling after what looking at some of them and, and seeing what they were saying about me over the last couple of years a few times. Oh well as a consequence <laughs> of articles I've written in this podcast where they're just hating on a dude that they don't know, but it get and I'm like, you don't even know me. Yeah. You don't even know me. But still it gets to me. It gets to me. Well, it's you know, you What's weird about nowadays is, is you say something and it can be spun out of context so easily. And then you can't backpedal because backpedal because if you, you know, you say something to try to reiterate on it and they just pick one or two words out of that. And then it drives another, another conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, the point? Mm-hmm. Um, These are the times we live in. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, for me, I really enjoy listening to what other people like and dislike about other products because Steve Jobs owned Pixar when I was there. So I was there from 2000 to 2012, fall of 12. I was there a couple years. And Steve was part of that. And I got to see him speak um, every month to the company. And it was a smaller company then. You know, we were at 400 plus employees. When I left, we were at 1,400. And you you learn a lot 
listening to really intelligent people, you know, talk and, and get to understand. He's, um, he's, he was all in his, in your estimation, he was all, every, he was all he was cracked up to be in more. He, well, if you were at Apple, you should, he was extremely feared. But at yeah, Pixar, I watched some documentary about what, what, a, what a tyrant he could be. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's business, you know, it's like, um, what is it? Edison and Tesla and, and just the, the whole, just how ruthless business people were back in the day Ford, you know, just all these people. Um, but Steve Jobs at Pixar, that was his toy land and we could approach him. You could carry on a conversation with him. Um, he was polite. If he didn't want to deal with you, he would acknowledge you. And then basically, you know, I've got to go. I mean, he was, you know, he wasn't get the fuck away from me or mm-hmm. you on your desk when you return because you talked to him. Now, one time somebody got a pink slip and it was the mistake of the company to me why that person got a pink slip. Um, Because we had a lot of famous people that came to the studio nonstop, all the time. Movie stars. I mean, you know, you see movie stars. You could be taking a a leak and Tom Cruise could be sitting next to you or Owen Wilson or, you know, coming to the bathroom, using right, you know, install right next to you. Um, But so they had a special guest there. They had Steve Jobs there giving this person the tour around the studio. And like an idiot, one of the PR people Posted out to the entire company. And this is when we probably had over a thousand employees. Whatever you do, don't come down to the atrium because Bono's here and Steve Jobs is giving a tour right now. <laughs> well, there were so many people that were YouTube freaks. I mean, like the Beatles. So let's say you, you pinged a thousand people with that email. Let's say 10% of them just rushed down there to take a peek because they figured, you know, I'm just going to take a peek. And one gal, I don't know if it was a gal or a guy, I might have been a, uh, a gal. She actually walked right up to Bono, so excited, and tried shaking his hand. And basically was, you know, polite and, you know, just told, you know, you're, you're okay. And, and, you know, play conversation there for two seconds or whatever, and then moved on. But she got let go because of that. Oh, that seems a little overly harsh. Yeah. I mean, well, it's, it's like, you know. when people that one, I mean, that doesn't even... People get stars. That, that, it, that that's not even inappropriate. It's not yeah. even inappropriate. It's, it's right? something that I mean, people. Well, no, it's something that happens to people when they get starstruck. If there, would have been a, if there would have been a company memo issued, don't approach famous people in the facility, then I could yeah, see. Well, they, they don't want it to be that way, but it was – the, the mistake was you told every you, you could have sent that email out, you know, the day before and said, hey, Bono's going to be in the studio. Uh, he's going to be touring around. Please just treat him like a normal guest. Mm-hmm. And if you really want to see and talk to him, please don't do that. Um, he doesn't want to be approached or, you know, he, he's only got so much time there and he wants to spend it with him and jail does and stuff. But, man, when you just flash something out there and, you know, if people – don't you know it's like when a big bucket's in front of you you can race everything your through your head on how you're shooting where you shoot everything and all of a sudden you get you know startled because you've never seen something this big and it showed up where it wasn't supposed to show up and it's the wrong direction wrong everything which is pretty much how every game i shoot at is never in that picture book comes across and i shoot at it agreed i don't hunt over food plots i don't hunt over bait 
I don't hunt over, you know, I don't draw an animal to me. I find water, the food, you know, and their bedding and find out that pattern over that little bit of time that I have. And I plot down there and I sit there for 10 hours a day for 10 days straight, straight days. And I have an opportunity usually every time. And it always comes from the wrong direction. But mm-hmm. you don't make the shot that you normally would make when you're, when you're, 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 you're level from, you know, they talk about it in, in, um, tactical stuff. And I had to go through this training when, when I was in Arizona to get my concealed permit, um, a level one through five and these levels on how you go up. And if you're, let's say level one inside your house, doors are locked, 100% safe, you know, your guard is so down, but then let's say somebody busts through that door with a sledgehammer and comes at you, your alertness to go to like level two or three, by the time you level three, you're, you, you can't jump that many levels and make quality decision. Mm-hmm. And then it was really cool. He had a, he had a great example. One of his friends that was, I don't know where he was in, in Maine or, or something where this guy was a state trooper, but also a national pistol shooter. And he pulled over a guy that met every description of somebody like pulling over a 90 year old man in a car for something that's, you know, let's say a, a, you know, nothing that would have your guard elevated to thinking, this is a bad guy. I'm pulling over somebody meets the description of just the guy robbing this bank, the car, the plates, everything. I'm coming in there at level four or five on ready to rock and roll in case I have to make some sort of flash decision. Well, he walked up onto this car. This guy jumped out immediately and started shooting at him. Oh, and they were so in a gun he battle. Went from, he went from one to 10. and Like a one, yeah, I guess this is a one to level five. He went from, a, a, you know, let's say a two because he was self-aware. Mm-hmm. Or, and he had went right to a five. And being a pistol champion, champion, national champion and everything, and they got into a gun battle at like 30 feet. He emptied 15 rounds at the guy and never hit him. On his sixteenth wow. round, he it's hit like him right that there. scene in Pulp right Fiction. Yeah, slow motion and bullets are going everywhere, and and he missed every single shot except for his last shot killed the guy. And of mm. course, that guy missed everyone too. But it was that whole idea of you know, to me, when I'm hunting, none of the bears ever come out of where I expect them. I just turn, and this is another thing we get into a camouflage debate with people, and people say. You don't need camouflage. Well, if you play the wind and if you don't move, then you can kill anything in, in blue jeans. And I hunted, you know, that company Stone Glacier. Sure. I hunted with those guys a few years ago and they're anti cam. I don't know if they're, they just think they poo poo camel. They eye roll about camel. Well, when you turn, and you're, you're, you know, you're sitting in a blind or if you're slow stalking and you're, you know, cow calling or whatnot. And, you know, bears are dead silent. I'm, I'm surprised how big of an animal can be so quiet and sneak right up on you. Yeah. And you those turn. Big, it's those big rubbery feet they got. Yeah. Big pads. And, and so, you know, you, you turn and you look and all of a sudden you're, you know, there's a bull or a bear or something staring at you from 40 yards away or whatever. And you're busted 100%. To me, if you're wearing camouflage and you're now you've got the wind, now you're not moving. If you sit there, I believe that you have a beat more possibility that you might be able to take a shot versus somebody that was completely silhouetted in a solid 
outfit. That seems like a reasonable supposition to me. And also for me, it's confident when I'm I'm sitting there and of course I'm on the ground. I don't make a giant blind. I usually, you know, put some twigs up or whatever, find some, you know, branches that I can break down and have them down in front of me. It's more like turkey hunt. You just sit up against a tree on a little, you know, cushion thing. And you're covering a wide area. Um, it's dense usually, you know, my longest might be, I can see down a little alley that I can go maybe 60 yards, but most of it's, you know, 15, 20 to 30 yards. Um, not jungled in like the West side here on on our state, but. Oh, um, your state being Oregon, Oregon, Oregon. Yep. I'm in Hillsboro, Oregon, which is 13 miles West of Portland. But, and you do some of your bear hunting a fair bit of it in California. Yeah, I do. I do one trip a year to go hunting and that's go down to California to hunt in an area that I started hunting in 2002 produces big bears. Um, they're not, um, they're hard to judge. They're, they're longer, they're taller. You know, like the last one I shot was he came up behind me. The wind had changed. It started hitting my back. Um, I was like, great. Now I got to watch behind me at a trail that was four yards behind me. And I had one that was about 14 yards behind me. And I knew I had to keep an eye on those because the bear could sneak, sneak through the, because I was sitting on a crossroads in these gulches where bears come down to the river. They traverse the river and they'll walk up the different gulches and whatnot. And that spot that I have, there's like nine bear trails that go through there. It's like a neat little crossroads. Um, and most of the time the wind behaves and blows, you know, from, the range that you would expect, you know, that you set up on. And this bear came in behind me and I had three seconds to judge it. And at a glance in that three seconds, the belly was way off the ground. The ears were very close together. Um, They don't have real long hair there. So, you know, they don't have six inches of hair, which, you know, it's a lot shorter. It's warmer there, you know, it's a hundred degrees. And I was like, oh, well, I got I to gotta, I gotta make a decision. He's going to, I've only got a little hole that I'm, I can shoot through here because he's, he's going to come around behind me and walk off to the right. And I can't shoot that way because I, I've got a little bit of, of twigs and stuff in there and I can't get a shot through there. I can't move. Um, so all of a sudden he stopped and he stood up and he reached all the way up to grab, I don't know if they were acorns there and scrub oaks or whatnot, but I looked at that and I said, that's a 10 foot reach. That's a shooting bear. It's well over, you know, five and a half, six foot. And I hit it with my 375. I shoot with a Holland Holland. Um, it's a cannon, but I hunt alone. When I shoot at something, I want it to be not tracking it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that I'm a, a bad shot. It's just, like I said, all my shots are in weird positions. I'm always, there's none of this beautiful. I'm on rest and I'm calm and there's a camera on me. And, no, it's in a well, twisted. You have to apologize for using a large caliber rifle when shooting a bear. Well, I hit this bear right in the back. He went down. He popped up as quick as he hit that ground. I cycled that and I hit him again. He went down. He struggled and tried to get back up. I hit him again. Three shots in less than three seconds. And I couldn't believe that he absorbed three, you know, two of those shots. Um, the first one was devastating hole in him. I mean, just brutal uh, exit hole out of the front of the chest. But he was, you know, 
animals are fighting for their lives, man. Once that, that adrenaline releases, man, they, they can do, you know, it's like somebody on what they call PCP or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. And I'm not one of these hunters that you see all these TV shows where they take one shot and it's like, oh, you got him. It's like, no, if it's moving, I am throwing lead at it. I don't care. I am not tracking dangerous game by myself. Yeah, um, and there's also a humanitarian component to it as well. Yeah, and and yeah, I could waste a little bit of meat, um, but that's all right. I want an animal to die and die quick. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to suffer, and I don't want to, you know, be that. Com- I'm not that confident in my shots. Um, you know, I practice and practice, and I can, you know, on a hundred yard range, my three seventy five. I, I, I you know, dialed in my own reload for the the gun. I can shoot quarter. Um, you know, I can put a 50 cent piece up there and I put three shots into it. Mm, but when you're freehand with that heavy gun in an odd position, caught off guard, you've got seconds to make a decision, pull that trigger. Um, everything goes out the door and, yeah. you know, but this guy was six feet, 11 inches from nose to tail, seven feet, one inches from front arm to front arm. Oh my God. A that's a giant. 21 and three quarter inch skull. Wow. And if I would and my buddies come out, they cross the river with their with a rhino and they, they got out to me. And the first thing they said, Holy shit, man, how did you pull the trigger that quick? It's like, well, you practice. The violent pull, you know, pull the trigger, it's a violent pullback. It's a nice smooth slide in. Pull the trigger. Mm-hmm. You know. What do you mean slide back. in? So I snapped that bolt just violently back. Yeah. And I, well, to push that bolt forward, just a nice smooth, you know, motion going forward. I'm not trying to jam it through. Otherwise I'll, I'll catch that shell. that's so big. I can't. Okay. 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 Got and it. I learned that from, you know, in the, the couple of brown trips, brown bear trips that I did in Alaska um, to know your cycle of your gun, because if you get into a panic and you're going to get maybe one shot and maybe you could get two, you want to be very familiar in how your bullet cycle. So I, you know, I just practice that nonstop, which was paid off because I got my shots off and that animal didn't move two feet from, from where I hit him. But people judge to me animals. And it's funny how big that's a 300 pound deer. It's like, it's a black tail. How can it be 300 pounds? Yeah. There might be one, but it's dead. like, well, how heavy it is. It's like, well, it's a dead weight. <laughs> People that I always, I always crack up when they're, oh, that bear's 500 pounds. So my buddy's always asking me, he's like, well, how big do you think the bear is? And I'm like, I don't know, maybe 250. You know, we gutted what it out. Month, what month did you shoot it? That's September, third Saturday in September. He's all it's fat open. then. All, I got him. All, all fat, day. fattened up. He didn't have a lot of fat on him. He was, no. they're, they're tall and lanky there and they grow. Do they hibernate? Uh, they don't really truly hibernate. Well, they're no bear truly slumber. Do they Do they find a den and sit in it for a long time in the middle of Not the- Not there. Not there at all. It's like the coastal range here. You know, they'll, they'll, yeah, they'll go in the slumber states, but I guess they're not like a true hibernate when you think like where snow zones are, where, you know, you're snowed in for four months out of the year. Do you collect yeah. the lard? I don't. I don't like that. And I'm also allergic to bear meat now. Oh, shit. What do you do with yeah. it? I take it and give it away and, you know, do other things with it. 
Um, I take the hide. I don't, I don't do mounts. I do rugs. It's the only mm-hmm. thing I do. Like all my deer, elk, or or anything else is just skull mount. You know, European mount. Mm. Um, I their lard is pretty special. If you're a baker, guess, does does that depend on on a lot what they're they're eating for that two weeks? What kind of flavors? Well, have? okay. So if they're eating fish, I think that that bear lard would be pretty stinky. Yeah. But other than that, it's pretty pretty fantastic stuff. I've been collecting deer lard the last couple of years and making chapstick out of it. Oh yeah, nice. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a really neat how hard some of that deer deer stuff is. Oh yeah. man, that stuff is rock hard. Yeah. It's so like when a- you make tallow, when you make chapstick out of deer tallow, you got to add some olive oil, and I add some honey to it, you know, to get the right consistency. But yeah, if you yeah, look at a straight deer tallow. You yeah, my new th- you would champ your lips trying to get it to dispense because it's so well. Hard. You know what I I found, which about is kind of against the point, you know. Chapping chap lip stuff. I found that when I was in high school and you know constantly hunting and constantly um, playing sports and and whatnot, my I got addicted to or not, I did my lips did to Blistex, which is a mm-hmm. a, 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 a certain kind of oil in there. But your lips get used to that moisture. You can't go without it. It's almost like they've hooked oh, you on it. Oh, wow. That's creepy. So once that's I, creepy. It, it took a long time for me to kick that. And once I kicked it, I will never use chapstick again because your lips will then want that moisture and your brain will, will, will want it. And I guess it's the same thing with people that use nasal sprays. Nasal sprays, your body can get adapt where, you know, like I've got allergies and, and I'll use a nasal spray at like one of the last resorts, but your body can get addicted to it. Um, and it's not in a sense where like it's an addiction where you feel a Jones for it. It's just, I can't, yeah, it's, it's weird. But chapstick was one of those things where I, you know, the only time I'll use it is, is somehow I got my lips so chapped that I, you know, but I haven't done it in 30 years. That's interesting that the body would adapt in a way that it ended up needing that. Once you start yeah. exposing it, your body to that. That's yeah. It, it, it but of, it, I, man, I can picture it. Intuitively, that makes sense to me. Well, yeah. and you know, there's all kinds of other shit where it's obviously the case, like heroin. Yeah. Yeah, there's... Or coke. There's... Yeah. The, med, sleep, sleeping medications. Yeah. No, I, I have... Windsor. <laughs> Challenges, challenges with me was is sleeping. I can't turn off the problem solving from trying to make motion better in the computer. And I got addicted to not addicted, but uh, Benadryl, which is mm-hmm. sleeping. Mm-hmm. Um, and it helps my allergies, but it was one of those things where now I've gotten off that because they say if you take Benadryl, you know, fifty milligrams, which is you know two low tabs a night to help you sleep. That can bring on early dementia by 50%. Oh, I, I wasn't aware of that. I've always been apprehensive about using, even when there's no clinical evidence to my knowledge, about using medications for stuff like that. The, once in a blue moon, I have eaten a 
Benadryl when I really needed to sleep and I was worried about something and afraid it didn't. And man, that stuff knocks your dick in the dirt. Oh but, yeah. But that's in. So that's interesting to know that that's, that's scary. That's really yeah. scary. Yeah. And it's, it's part of being, you know, to me, just whatever brain that designers have, it's, it's hard to, abandon a problem that you're working on and like my my challenges with a character i might work on a character for four to six months straight Mm -hmm. and the amount of pressure you're under to get the most quality workout and then you know working on a lead character on one of the biggest film studios in the world and then having the critique of the director the production designer the producer the directing animator working with you every day um, to make this perfect character at Pixar, it had to be perfect. Um, that made me even more um, harder to turn your brain off because you're nonstop trying to solve a problem. And that sounds very same, stressful. It's the same failure as you take a shot at an animal and you miss, you run it through your head, or you hit it, you run it through your head over and over and over. What mistake did I make? And you can't turn it off. It's a terrible feeling and I don't have been there plenty. Yeah. And I haven't, I don't have the feeling of, of loss. Like some people can relate to where, you know, you get into, um, you know, let's say a car accident and somebody dies in, I've never been in any situation where, you know, but I imagine it's the brain just, you're, you're thinking over and over and over and over. And we do that when you hunt, you just go like, how did that, you make one mistake and that bear spins and turns and bolts and you're like, ah, How did I do that? I took that's 50% of it for me is how the hell did I do that? And why can't I control my emotions better? That's 50. And then 50% is just concern for the animal. How much is it suffering? Yeah. And I hit a bear. I was sitting, it was about 45 yards away. And I, at that time I was hunting in my, I call it a tree chair because I'm up three feet in the air on this tree. And that allows me to be up big enough where I can have my little ground debris in front of me. But that allowed me to be able to see down this river washes and stuff. Otherwise sitting on the ground, I would never be able to see more than, you know, 20 or 30 yards being elevated three feet up allowed me to see. I don't, if I do do a tree stand, like climb tree stand, I'm about eight feet. That's all I need. I just need to get up in the air to see further. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand how people haunt at 30 to 40 feet in a tree. Uh, my oh, buddy, I, well, I, I do that with my bow, but, but yeah, I, um, I, I, think, I think that is, um, for me, it's just a risk factor I can't take, um, by myself. But in terms of being able to see around your approach, I mean, you gain so much visibility by just getting up a few feet, yeah. And, and, and for me, it was up a few feet. And this bear came rolling. I understand in. what you're talking about with the danger. I mean, I've fallen out of a lot of trees over my life. Well, one of my buddies fell out. Um, my brother's good friend in Michigan. And, you know, he's a tough-ass Marine. He was in the first wave in, in the first Iraq war. I mean, just tough-as-nails guy. Um, and my brother looked out in the field, and Mike's just wandering, like, like a zombie out there. And he's like, what the hell is going on here? And my brother came up to him, you know, climbed down his tree, San Emilio, and walked him as he knew something was just completely wrong. Mm-hmm. There's something just very wrong. This, this. So 
So when he got up to him, he was covered in blood and he was saying, somebody beat me up. And what had happened is he was drawing on a doe and he leaned out and his safety strap somehow, you know, Ooh. hook. He and fell that a, forward. No broad head involved. No broad head. He fell. Well, there's a broad head in the situation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he didn't have that go through him, which was yeah. so lucky. Thank God. Because yeah. broadheads scare me more than bullets. I do mm. not like mm. broad. I mean, they're just, it's crazy just the damage they do. But he fell and he tried to catch. And he broke both his wrists off at the um, the carpal bone. So both his online radius were broken. I think now you can pop a bear paw off so easy just by yeah. moving it. His, just his little, hands are just flapping. Ah, his hands were just like that. Just like you'd pop a bear, but except for the skin was holding it on. And, you know, obviously he's in, in, in shock and that took him a long time to recover. And, and, you know, he was only 10 feet in the air, eight feet in the air. No, geez. Um, but this bear that I took a shot at, he was, he, he caught the sound of my clothing move. It was a dead calm, you know, like 28 degree morning. You know, that awesome morning you can hear a branch snap from a mile away type mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris Bear. And he busted me and he's staring right at me. And this is where I'm, you know, I'm glad I'm had tone camouflage. Um, I'm in plain, pretty much kind of like plain sight. And he's looking at me and trying to figure out, should I turn in bowls? He's got those, that body language of a bear that doesn't know if I'm going to spin and sprint or I'm going to just keep going the direction that I wanted to go. And uh, he. Fight or flight. Yeah. And he turned his head at a certain way that I could finally get my gun over to the left because he's he was over to the left and i'm right hand shooter so it was you know a natural shot from there and i had my arm on the little armrest of the tree, tree tree chair and i was relaxed i had him right there on that chest he was kind of a little three-quarter to me so i knew i could plow through that that little bit of that front and it's going to exit out through long heart and go right out the back of that um, other shoulder blade and I pulled that trigger and he bolted and I'm like at 40 yards I can your target's huge you know it's 12 inch circle um and I couldn't figure out what happened so you know I gave it a little bit of time and I walked down there and I'm like are you kidding me there's not a drop of blood he didn't roll every every bear that usually that I hit they roll forward flip Mm. Uh, they don't turn and bite um, probably because they're getting hit by a <laughs> yeah. uh, but I found a little fat and a little hair. And what had happened was because I was shooting with a scope on my barrel, some of that little tree debris that I put about eight inches in front of my barrel, there was a brand new um, sapling stuff that I put there. Uh, when that bullet exited that gun, it clipped that little eighth inch branch. And I think it caused the bullet to drop very quickly and skim just under the brisket of him and go between his left shoulder and his uh, breastplate there and just skim that little bit of hair and fat right there. Just You just set him on notice. Yep. Now I got an educated bear there now. He's a big cinnamon too, which is oh. neat. But, you know, that's the only thing I could figure out how I missed that shot because I was yeah. completely calm. I wasn't excited. I was, you know, relaxed it, because – I love my train wreck shots where you turn and there's an animal and I have a split second to decide. It's not like 
your whitetail hunting when you're up in a tree stand, you know, and you see a whitetail working its way toward you from 150 yards away on crisp oak leaves. Yeah. And it's working and it's working and it's and working. You're kind, of, you're kind of chuckling under your breath. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're just sitting there getting all worked up. Your heart rate's going higher and higher. And you're now you're thinking and now you're trying to calm yourself down. You're going through all this emotion where I look at it as, you know, you turn your head and there's a bear there or a deer. You look at it, you judge it. You He's dead before up. you have a chance to get all worked up. Yeah. And you pull a trigger and, and you know, you, you make yeah. it a good shot. Part of the reason is because my adrenaline is not through the roof. All right. So I want to talk turkey for a while. Sure. Okay. So the reason I initially reached out to you is because I'm trying to find companies that don't use dead and dying wildlife as advertising instruments and i want to promote those companies on my show and at first i i thought you fit the bill i now realize you don't but i want to i want to so what i'm doing right now doesn't it's not going to appeal to you from an advertising standpoint because it's i don't have the the audience I have about three to 400 people listen to my podcast every week. So it's just not an appealing as an advertising an instrument. So, but I'm looking for these companies because I think it's like I start talking about advertising. It seems like I'm trying to make money or something. This is a money losing proposition for me. I'm already in the hole about eight, 900 bucks. And if I took a penny for what I'm doing, it would be against everything I'm trying for. But I want to throw out there that if what I'm doing starts to take hold, that you could consider a band. So the problem is that you have you have a pro staff, and I looked into them a bit, and I, first thing I see is a dude with no shirt on holding up two dead foxes. And then there's where, a where, that was not on my stuff. Yeah, it's a guy named um, Picos Dell. Picos Dell. Who? Picos Dell. I typed in Gulch Gear, and he came right up. He says he's pro staff. Well, he's got he's got a hashtag. He's got hashtag uh, Gulch Gear, and I just assume. Well, he... those no, that's not a pro staff. Those those are people that buy my stuff. And they do what typical other hunting people do is is they they display how they do things and that's oh here can you see this you got to go just no I have no idea who that guy is oh okay not (laughs) so do you but do your pro staff do they wear your gear while showing dead animals um. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I'm so this is this is one thing that's interesting that you know, I need product testers. I can't right, have right, but you don't. Go through, you, you can have you those without without having them. Product testers, right? Yeah. Now, if you're my employee and you're working for me, and 
I've got a rule book for my employment, right? That's what a company does. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing that. I'm, these are guys that have contacted me. They just, they love to hunt. They love the fact that buy an American, they want to support American companies. And they asked me about, you know, do you have people that test stuff for you? Like pro staff and this and that, and then a couple bunch of other ambassadors and those other weird names. And I'm like, well, I'm interested in finding people that will run my gear. You're still going to pay for it. You'll get a little bit of a discount. I give, I think 30% and then it's got down to 25 and me. Yeah. I think it's 25% now mm-hmm. and they get it maybe a little bit earlier about the same time it releases and they go out and they beat the crap out of it. And I'm not going to tell somebody who I'm not paying can't, can't to behave that. a certain way in hunting. Now, if I'm they still are trying to flesh this out in my own mind, so you got to bear with me. Here. No, that's cool. But here's 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 the key thing: if somebody's doing something that I think can hurt my company name, let's say they're saying something against a certain race, a certain group of people, um, they're doing unethical hunting things and showing a photo on their Instagram, um, I would drop them and say that you know, I. I'm not going to support, you know, but where, where do you draw the line as a, as a small business and start dictating, you know, pro staff is somebody who product tests for me. They beat the crap out of it. They give me the feedback and I get to hunt with them because a lot of them, you know, are from Oregon here and they know where to hunt and I don't know where to hunt in the mountains. I'm not just going to wander out there, but it's not in a traditional sense where I'm giving you the clothes I want you to get on your Instagram page. I want you to get on your Facebook. Yeah. I want you to promote all this it's stuff. It's not an expectation. Yeah. And if you look at most of the people that I got hunting, they're doing what a lot of people are doing. And they're showing, you know, hey, I killed this. And they talk about, you know, Gold Scare allowed me to, these, this elk didn't even see me. Um, you now, a lot of guys running it that, that come up and say, yeah, I killed this bull at eight yards. I get tons of people sending me pictures. I don't put those on my website, on my Instagram, anything. Mm-hmm. I show photos of my camouflage, what it looks like in the field. And people okay. that trade both go to me and say, you know, it's a big sportsman show here. There's about 65,000 people that go through it. They're, you know, they sit there and they're looking at the monitor up there. And I'm showing 60 awesome photos of the camo in all these different situations. And it's like, well, does anybody actually kill anything in your camo? I don't see any dead animals up there. And I go, oh, well, all right. I'm in the I changed, business. I changed my mind. I'm going to promote your company. All right. I'm I'm in the business of concealment. I'm not in the business of selling dead animals. If I was in the business of selling dead animals, I'd have dead animals all over my website. Yeah. But I don't sell dead animals. I sell camouflage to conceal you. And when you buy my camouflage, I that's it, it, your business to do what you want to do in it. Okay. All right. That's good enough. Yeah. That's good enough. See, that's you can tell that that's something i'm not i'm still trying to work through there's some company there's some things where it's companies where it's just gross like on the sportsman channel and the outdoor channel where- well i i stopped watching all those I, you know i watched those back in the early 2000s when well, there's a guy named i think it was tret barda barton who was a traditional bow hunter guy and he did it i guess it's called the hard way and oh, he, I've heard he, of that show. And he was kind of enjoyable to watch because he was not very successful. 
all the time because he was hunting on the ground. He was hunting with a recurve. He had to be in a certain distance. He, you know, was, was and, I, and I liked that approach. And then later on in the 2000s, people started coming out with more and more shows of the hunting style that I just don't hunt. So I, I don't like watching them. Um, and it, it just, it's, you know, for me, I'm on the ground. I don't hunt over bait. I don't hunt over food plots. I don't, and, and it, I don't run hounds. Um, mm-hmm. But if other people hunt that way, that's, that's fine with them. I'm not, I'm not a, you know, a, a hunt Nazi where I'm like, this is the only way you can hunt. Um, it is promoting hunting. Right, right. I'd bad. Say I'm largely the same. I, 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 I have some concerns. I'm not trying to pass any laws. I have some concerns about technology. I have some concerns about people with infrared freaking bullshit shoot a thousand yard scopes. I have some problems with game cams. I, I think that hunting. Would be I set up a trail camera at my my blinds. The reason why I do that. Most people so do. Can, Most people do. And, I, I, this is a and, tick I have where I don't. I'm like, yeah. And this is this is the big reason for it is. When I go back to camp, I sit in that chair from 530 in the morning until 1130. And from 1130 until 230 or so, I go back to camp because I got my German Shepherd in my truck. And I want to get out of her and play with her and, and, and get her going. She's my protection out there. And you want to know if that son of a bitch came through I want to know if gone. that son of a bitch has come through. And God dang it, if I tell you I left at 1125 and I'll freaking <laughs> black yeah, face barrel at 1130, that. 20 yards that. away. I get that. And that is hunting to me. And that camera. You've had that happen? You've had that I happen. have it happen twice. Yeah. You got to Dude, you got to take your dog with you. I t- no. I hunt with my corgi. I can't. You know, California and Oregon are both. Uh, you have a dog in the field. You know, fishing game is black and white. I'm going to get my Oh, really? You can't have your dog with you? Oh, absolutely not. Well, uh, if you're bird hunting, you can. Bird hunting, sure. But bears, absolutely not. Deer, I don't think so. Elk, I don't think so. And some states they allow tracking with it, which I think is, you know. Here they allow that. I think they I allow can... tracking. And if you're in a wilderness area, you're supposed to have the dog on a leash. But Shifty oh, just okay. I mean, Shifty's Shifty has saved more elk than than helped me get elk. I, mean, I think that is a really she neat thing. Is, she has screwed me royally a few times. Yeah. Well, I think if you got a, if, if the law allows it and, you know, I could train my, because German Shepherds are, are, you know, part of the Schutzen, it's uh, protection and, and tracking. And there's, uh, me and there's me and Shifty with an elk. Aren't you showing a picture of a dead animal? Well, to a friend. <laughs> I don't oppose that. I oppose showing I, strangers. I, I completely understand. I, I've never been at Pixar. There was, when I left, there were 1,450 employees, roughly. There was two of us that hunted. And when we did the movie Brave, I did a talk on bears. And I'm not a bear expert. I just know from what I've learned um, from other people educating me, you know, especially uh, up in Alaska, and I just learned from reading and mistakes that I've made. And it was the story team to give you ideas. And, and one of them, you know, I talked about, Bears walking in their own footsteps over crunchy things. And it's really neat. They'll actually make holes into the ground. It's really neat up in brown bear country where those holes are, you know, two feet in diameter and six inches into the ground because they're walking on the same spot 
um, as they go across bogs or whatnot, you know, they know. And all these different things that bears do. It's like one of the things that one of the guys told me, um, it was an old time hunter up in Alaska, that we want to be cautious to our right side on these brownies. Because I was hunting on, on uh, native land. He was married to the chief's daughter, I think. Mm. He was like 70 years old. So what was that statement you just made about cautious on their rights? What? What? Most bears are right-handed. They will circle around to the right. So he was talking about when we put pressures on these brownies, that if you get a guy that's wiser, whatever, you know, they're full of, I guess, four different kinds of parasite worms in them. And they're not very happy all the time. They're like a Gotti or a Cape Buffalo, you know, they're, they're mad or they're pissed. There's no other, you know, functions there they're, they're, they 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 got a bite they're they're, and they're they, mad because they're, they're infected with parasites wow can you imagine if you had brown worms in fact when i split my first brown bear or open trichinosa trichinosis yeah, and fleas and ticks yeah well he was saying that it'd be a miserable existence although yeah. they although bears often seem quite placid mm-hmm. content and seem to be enjoying themselves once in a while too. So I don't know. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I think I think they they you know you get a arthritis in our body and we still go out and enjoy things, smile, but right. inside inside we do have pain. And if you step on the wrong way in the wrong you know in the bush, um, you twist that, you're going to be a little bit more angry. You're going to be pissed. Um, but he was saying that. Most bears are right-handed, like 80% of them. And that means they circle around to the right. So they'll come around to the right on you. Come up so to they, your back. So they got their right hand closest so they can whack your ass if they want. I don't I don't know what it is, but that's what he was saying. I don't know if it's true or not. I just thought that was kind of a cool thing. If it was true, that's cool. But yeah, you know, this this talk at Pixar, the you know, most of the people, one of the first questions are, you know, aren't bears in danger in California? And I went to talk about, you know, in 1965 or so when they started regulating the hunting and the management, um, blah, blah, blah. Now the population has gone from like 6,500 to like 3,500 or 3,800 bears, 38,000 right. bears. Right. Okay. Yes. It's in, five in times greater. And this and that. And basically, you know, I think still most of them were like, that's just hunting propaganda bullshit. You're just lying. You know, that's mm-hmm. just what, what you want us to make it feel that justifies you. I had another guy that I played foosball with that was a modeler. Nice guy. You know, I agree to disagree with things. It's it's work. I don't bring politics into you work. You would get together and play foosball. Oh, my God. We had all kinds of – we had – Would this be at, on break at work? It could be any time of the day. Somebody call you up, hey, dude, you want to snap again okay, foos? That sure. makes sense. That you makes sense. Go I just thought that you were – I don't know, getting together in the evening to play foosball? No, anytime. I mean, we had basketball. You'd say, you'd call them up and say, hey, you want to come over and play foosball? Well, we had basketball. You just don't seem whimsical enough to do that. You just seem like you're too busy and focused for something. Oh, no. That that was one of those things that you could take a break from and get your mind at ease. It is fun. It is one of those. I haven't played that in years, but. It's yeah, fun. it's one of those sports that I could play against somebody that was terrible. And I've been playing for, you know, 30 years. And I would teach them. This is what was needed at Pixar. Everybody taught each other 
their secrets. And I could bring somebody up within six months of playing to my level. And it's because I showed them every trick that I know and how to get there. But he was so against hunting. So against hunting. He thought it was the most evil fucking thing in the world. Would you say that most people in big cities that have not been exposed to hunting are a neutral or are most people again? I don't think they're, they, you know, he, he thought, I go, but Mark, you eat beef, you eat Mm -hmm. pork, you're not Mm -hmm. a vegetarian. How could you be against hunting? Mm -hmm. Don't you ever see what goes on in a slaughterhouse? He's fine fine with it. If somebody else is doing, if if somebody else is doing his dirty work for him, it comes in, it comes in cellophane. It's, it's it's not, I don't want buying meat. It's not suffering, blah, blah, blah. But I was like, okay, we're just going to agree to disagree. And let's not talk about that anymore. Yeah, I, you know, basically I wanted to say, dude, you're fucking full of shit, but I enjoy foosball. He's a colleague. I have to collaborate with him every day. Um, You know, you can't work with everybody in a professional setting. That Yeah. You know, I've gotten way better getting along with people I disagree with. Like my neck, my neck, for example, I'm a secular dude. My next door neighbor, I gave him three acres and he built a house on it. He's one of my best friends and he's a holy roller. It's the, and he's a right winger, whereas I'm a little left of center. It doesn't, that shit just doesn't matter. And with respect to the vegan or anti-hunter thing, it's so bizarre. I find my, that I am way closer to being an anti-hunter than I am to being a hunting influencer. I have more warmth in my heart for anti-hunters than I do hunting influencers. That makes any sense, even though they hunt and I hunt. I just, I just, there's just some forms of interacting and using and with wildlife that I think are illegitimate. But go ahead, go ahead. So this guy. Uh, oh, there's, there's just that that studio. The amount of people, and that's that's how I ended up coming up to Oregon after. 12 years and 11 films there. Um, like a re- resume that you, I, I couldn't get a better resume. I mean, I worked on 11 Academy Award winning films that won Best Picture for Best Animated. Of How many films, animators were on each of those films? Um, there's probably, I'm just trying to get a sense of what a big deal you are. If there was 300, then you're not a big deal. But if there's three, then <laughs> I'm just kidding you. Well, there's an army that works on a film, maybe 500 people. Okay. All right. Um, but I'm just, jo- I, I'm just joking. That does not <laughs> diminish your accomplishment in any way. So I'm just I, curious. I, I, I'm embarrassed. I might edit that out. That was kind of a dickhead thing to say. Oh, uh, no. It's one of those things where, you know, I, I got to work on all these great films. I got to work on the lead characters. I got to work on Carl for Up and Merida for Brave. Um, I won the BS award for. Those oh, I think I saw up. That was a good film. That was my character. That old man, his wife, and the months. I did all those characters. Oh, okay. those were my. All right, you're big. Characters. You're kind of a big deal. All right. Um, <laughs> and the BS award is like Academy Award for behind the scenes, the Visual Effects Society. Um, oh, oh. Which, like when I went and received those, let's see, Harrison Ford was one of the guys that received an award for he did our main talk and who was the other guy, some other famous person like that. But I mean, 
Did you I get to go up front and accept your award and all that? Yeah, I, just, I had to speak in front of uh, 1,500 or 2,000 people, um, the top elite in the entire world. Was there somebody the- there roasting folks? We had uh, a couple of different comedians on there. Um, I forgot who. Pat Oswald was one that came up and talked. Um, this guy just died. Um, that was in Jane Cameron's films all the time. Yeah, um, I, be cool inter- I, just, I, I can I can't imagine. But I, I can't. You know, I, I just want. Yeah, I'm trying to picture if you'd be the kind of guy that would say something along the line, akin to "Get my wife's name out <laughs> your fucking mouth." You well, even, you're not even married. You're, you just have a girlfriend. If I'm right, if I'm correct. Yeah, we've been together for. Nine years, something like that. But I look at, um, you know, I, I got what I wanted out of out of being down there in the Bay Area. I wanted to hunt and fish, and the only way to do that it seems <laughs> like a bizarre place. To was go. one week. Like I got that, it's just it's not. <laughs> there's better places than than that. Where you grew, where you grew up is better than the Bay Area, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and especially Emeryville, where I lived, which was wedged between Oakland and Berkeley. So Berkeley was a quarter mile away, and I had to go into Berkeley to do all kinds of things. And Berkeley people are just definitely not they, – they don't work well with hunting people. You interact <laughs> – why? in what capacity would you, as, an, as a film maker, a film and animator, have to interact with university? No, the – Oh, the town of Berkeley. Berkeley. It gets yeah. confusing because there's the town, there's Berkeley. the school, and yeah. the, and there's no. the and then there's the philosopher. The city of Berkeley had so many views that I thought were just kind of odd, um, and the people that I had to interact with all the time were just not. You know, when you hunt and fish, you like to talk about hunting and fishing, right? Right. You know, you come to work and you got your buddies. When I was in Michigan, when deer season hit. There was 90% of the people at the studio that hunted and almost hundred percent of them fished. When you go to Pixar and you've got, you know, two people, one other person other than me that I can actually talk to about hunting, something that I did and love to do. And I always have, it makes it so that you can't ever talk about anything that's favorable because if you do, other people around you get disgusted. And these were colleagues. I have to work with them. I had to participate every day with them in critiques and in reviews. And the last thing you want to do is be the odd man out or odd gal out and get persecuted. And nowadays you lose your job because you don't click necessarily. And they weren't doing that. That's one thing too. They were never saying anything bad about it. They were never saying anything good about it. But if I were to speak about it, it would be one of those things where they might have a different opinion on me. And I I just kept that out of my work, my work where, but I really wanted to go to work and, talk to my buddies about this cool hunting trip that I had, even though I didn't kill anything. I saw all these cool things. I had a bobcat that was going to eat me one time. It was the coolest mm. thing in the world. I turned around. I saw, bob- I saw a mule deer walk up to a bobcat and lick its nose a couple of years ago. Yeah. I mean, just, it's amazing what you see, you know, in that other 99% of the time when, when you don't have an animal in front of you to shoot, <laughs> you know, you're just enjoying yeah. what people I tell people. And I try to tell these people, you know, that I've worked with at Pixar, Go sit in the woods for four hours straight and don't move very much. 
deep See, in the woods. You'd be amazed. They'd at be what blown you away. See. I'm always blown yeah. away. Yeah, it's it's some of the things that that I see. It's just like, are you serious? Yeah. I'm just sitting there in my little tree chair, and this little tiny hawk spotted me, turned my head. He came flying in. He literally flew about five feet away from my face, and he did three complete circles around me like this. And then he flew <laughs> up and landed on a branch about twenty yards away, and kept tilting his head, going like, "What are you?" Yeah. And I've had to kill camouflage, so he's he, he's having a hard time making that silhouette out of what is that? Well, yeah. He was so curious. He came in and literally like a bat flying around your face. There's such I, a obviously there's such a major difference between ambush hunting and still hunting, and yeah, I mean one of them is relaxing, and one of them is taxing as hell, especially in the mountains. And yeah. they're totally different. And I probably spend 60, 70% of my hunting time stalking, trying to stalk stuff in the mountains and the other 30 or 40% sitting in a tree stand. And I don't know which I enjoy more, but man, the appeal sitting still in the woods and all the stuff you get to see. Yeah. I had this little tiny, one of those little chatter red squirrels that we hate that spot you and start just going nuts when you're trying to stop. A pine squirrel. Yeah, so I had this little guy that had a, had, a, had a route, started about 25 yards out in front of me where he had his little stash. He'd run down this little branch, and he'd run around here, and he'd run all the way behind me, come back, and come around over here. And this is about a you know 150-yard loop he'd do. And he had his little stopping points because he had to cross these little areas where he knew the hawks and owls could hit him. And he was just the goofiest one. And I watched him for two years, for three years. you know it was the same one? exact same pattern the exact same oh, stuff the yeah, same behavior yeah, okay. you know what i mean okay. and i yeah. assume you know a squirrel can live you know three four years I, I i don't know how i don't know if they're like a rat where they gonna live maybe two but it was really neat to see the same behavior and oh there was other squirrels that would come in you know like a bigger one like a gray squirrel or something like that mm-hmm. and boy he kicks them out of there and it was he was just you know, little things that you, you'd never notice if you were, you know, not sitting there Absolutely. 10 hours a day for 10 days straight. Absolutely. Nobody. So what about grouse? Like rough grouse. People hunt rough grouse their whole lives, I bet, and never get to see one just acting like a rough grouse. But if you're a dude that sits in a tree stand, you get to see him come through and see yeah. what they're like, where they're like putting to each other softly, well, that's- moving through. And just kind of picking at bugs and stuff. You don't get to see that if you're a grouse hunter, but you get to see it if you're a white-tailed deer hunter in a tree stand. Well, that's the fun about hunting in California, the little quails with the big, long little tops on them with the little nubbin. California quail, right? Okay, yeah, California quail. Those are like a little troop. There's a little point guy out there, and he's out there, and he's moving along, and he's wiggling his little thing, and then all of a sudden he'd call them. You know, they'd move up like, okay, it's clear. Then he'd go out there and he'd be point person. Oh, and the way they oh. work their way through and all the little noises they make, you can kind of hear them coming. And then you can see them cross. It's just so neat to, to see, you know, oh, all that. everything is weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, not, That's not what's cool about you and I getting to be middle age. We can still do that when we're 70, 80 years old. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, people are like, how can you just sit in the same spot? And I'm like, well, I've got a spot where I know if I sit there for 50 hours or what? No, almost 100 hours, I will get a shot at a game. 
Because yeah, but there's bears over here. We walk, we get them all, we, we catch them all the time. But do you get a shot? Well, no, because they're moving, they're running away. Like, well, hmm. how many bears have I killed? I kill one every other year for five years, you know, for, for 10 years. So I killed oh. five bears for 10 years. Oh. And how many did they kill? None. Oh, no kidding. How many did they this shoot is a at? Cal- this is California guys you know in California. Yeah. And they, they lost a bear. And I told them this over and over. I said, this is not blacktail hunting where you pull the trigger and go, you had a good shot. When you hit that bear and it goes on the ground, you had better not take your eye. You better cycle around and have that on there because it's going to get up. Mm. And I heard a shot because I'm on, on one side of the mountain and the river, and then they're on the other side. So we're about, you know, a mile apart. And those shots, you can hear echo. And I hear that single shot and I'm like, I shot a black tail. I'm like, cool. I was like, wonder if I can get to hide from that, you know, whatever. And I get back to camp and I'm like, what happened? Where's where's the buck? Well, like, it was a bear. I'm like, well, where were the follow-up shots? And they're like, well, we hit it straight in the chest and it dropped. We were high-fiving each other basically, and it got him ran away. I'm like, you're shooting a 270. Mm. It's flat. It's flat. You know, I don't know a lot about guns, but I like a heavy 300 grain bullet that mushrooms out and Put the one inch hole in you and causes your chest cavity to, you know, expand 12 inches. This thing was laying on the ground and for, by all appearances was dead. And then, and then it pulled a Lazarus. Well, it was funny. We were brown bear hunting. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if you get that reference, but that's like Lazarus. He was a dude in the Bible that they kind of like Jesus where he was, went to the grave and then, few days later oh jesus went to his grave and said lazarus get out of there and lazarus came out <laughs> well i didn't get that reference but it is brown bear hunting basically the guys are like you hit it you keep throwing lead at it because we don't like tracking brown bears that are wounded and we just soon you empty your gun into the bear even if it's laying on the ground put one more shot into them just for the funsies of not having to track a wounded bear and approach a wounded bear because mm-hmm. they've had too many hairy situations where they've gotten to bad shots where somebody didn't do a follow-up right away well these guys these french guys were part of the camp but they were on the other side of this big flats we were in um Chinitna bay and we were watching them from glasses from about four miles away. So I'm watching it through the, you know, heavy duty power, whatever, um, spotting scope. And they're sneaking up on this brownie that's coming across and they get in position and that they're, that brown they're I'm like, they're moving way too much. My guy's like, yeah, they're going to get busted. And all of a sudden that brownie just stood up and was like, they're, they were busted. Well, it hit the ground and boom, the trigger went and boom, that bear just dropped. And we're going, better start shooting. We're the follow-up shot, man. That mm-hmm. bear snapped up in one second later, and he was sprinting full blast. And we were so far away, it was – the bear dropped. And then it took, like, whatever, six or seven seconds for that sound to finally, you know, come across. Oh, that. yeah, yeah. It was so cool. And then all of a sudden, you see it get up and run, and then it gets dropped again and killed. But also you hear because the guide opened up, the other guy was shooting, and his buddy opened up. So they had three guns going off at the same time. They had like nine shots thrown at it, and of course they killed it uh, right away. But um, I even seen an opening shot where it's perfect shot, double lung, but it just acted like it wasn't even hit. 
you probably know the elk have a have a reputation for acting like they're dead for a second and then coming back to life. Uh, I I don't know, but I know that um, I've heard stories on, you know, the elk that I shot and the only elk that I ever shot with my gun, I came around the corner and I didn't know what I was doing. I had to pull a California tag up in the Marble Mountains and I was calf calling and I was walking around this corner and this lonely spike was coming in to get some ladies and he turned that corner. I turned that corner. We met each other's eyes at 80 yards. I pulled up my gun as quick as I could and pulled that trigger. He rocked. He turned and started a, a sprint away from me and I hit him again right in the ass and it took out um, into his spine there and he dropped. Well, my brother heard the shot. My dad, they were out hunting with me. They weren't out that morning. They walked out to me where I was about four miles away and, and my brother had walked that way and I told them where I was going. We didn't have radios or anything. You know, we weren't, we don't hunt high tech. And um, my brother got him, you know, I got him his guts out and, you know, and cavity opened and started getting cool there. Cause it was a nice, you know, like 36 degree morning on the metal floor. There it was like that cool frost on there. Mm-hmm. And my brother came out and he got that chest cavity cracked open. He pulled out that heart. There was only a quarter of the heart left. My opening shot with that 370 or not my 338 wind mag devastated a third of the, you know, three quarters of the heart. It was, it was like exploded, but yet that elk rocked back and he was determined to run full blast away from me. Mm-hmm. And for me, all I heard about elk hunting is don't let those elks get away from you. They'll run three miles. You know, I don't know if that was the Rocky ones versus the Roosevelt. I'm hunting Roosevelt and the Rockies, I guess that'll take off and run like crazy on you where a Roosevelt will spook and it'll go hundred yards and go back to, you know, like, all right, I'm, I'm far enough away. Maybe not a hundred yards, maybe a little more, but they seem like they don't want to run. I, I have a similar story to the one you just told a handful of years ago. I shot an elk with my bow and it took four or five steps and, or little hops and then tipped over graveyard dead or so I thought. And I go over there and I'm staring at it. And I'm like, I can't believe it. I, this is over my hunting elk season. I'm processing how much vacation time I'm going to save. And holy shit, I was going to be out here for 15 days. And now I got it done in five. And it stands up after about a minute and a half and runs down the mountain. And Shifty, the corgi, tracked it down. It went about 100 yards and, and, uh, we found it, and it too, like yours, was shot right through the heart, which is not where I was aiming. I was I don't aim for the heart with my bow, I aim for the center of the lungs. I aim for the center point of that kill zone. That's my my shot. Yeah. I, I don't I don't. All these other people want to shoot in the head or shoot in the neck, but I'm like I. That's like a three inch zone. Mm-hmm. I want to shoot at an 18 inch circle and put it in the middle. And I'm nervous. I'm not on sticks. I'm not sitting there on a tripod. I'm not sitting there with anything. I'm freehand shooting. That's how I hunt. Yeah. I don't, I'd rather be sitting on a stick or something, but my shots are never presented that way necessarily. Yeah. Um, there is a guy that was killed here in Oregon. I think it was last year, last fall, did that, walked up on a bull and got up and killed him. Whoa, really? Yeah. I think it was, I think it was, I think that was the, you know, I don't, I don't read a lot of stuff on people that just, you know, a hunter was killed by a bull. I assume, well, wasn't because he was in heavy rut and they called him in and it just looked at a guy and over ran him down like a moose would, you know, I think 
he had shot it and they walked up on it and they proceeded to try to, you know, Hey, grab the antlers or, or something. And, you know, it jumped up and, and, you know, lowered those spikes and hit him in the chest and, and killed him. Wow. Did you hear about this in Oregon a handful of years ago? Somebody calls in a dude calls in a bull for another dude and the guy wheels on it to shoot him and it shoots the guy, his buddy. Uh, I, well, bow. I think he killed him. Uh, that's why razor blades, bow razor blades scare me worse than bullets. Yeah. So I mean, I, I don't know what it is. You can stop the bleeding. I guess it seems like on a bullet a lot easier to stop the bleeding that mm-hmm. severs every single little thing with a perfect razor blade cut. Yeah. There was a guy that I was going to use. I was all set to go with him. He was on the backside of the Chinet, uh, Chinet Bay. And unit, I think it was still unit 9A. This is in Alaska. This is in Alaska, and this is in 2005. I was going to go in 2006. I was going to hire this guide. And that fall, there was a guy that was in front of the guide who's taking a shot on a bear. And I don't know if they were on the flats or whatnot. But the guides there, when you pull that trigger, the guides open up. And people oh, get pissed re- about that. No matter what the circumstances are, once yep. you shoot, they're shooting. Once you shoot, the guy's shooting. And what happened was this guy that, took his open. That, see, that, I'm, I've already lost all interest. Who cares about that then? You know, well, if I'm just going to shoot, I shoot once and then a bunch of other people shoot. That's frustrating because wah, there's wah, a law. I guess I guess there's a law in Alaska about guys tracking bears, and if the bear is in a situation where it can get oh into the into the thicket, whatnot, others, that the guide has to or is supposed to protect the hunter and protect the fact that they're going to be tracking a wounded, you know, brown bear, which is a professional. I have no problem with people that guide on lands that I too can hunt, but it just, that what you just described has, it's just remarkable to me how little interest I would have in some, Hey, I got this. I got an idea. I'm going to hire a guide. He's going to take me to the bear. He's going to take me to the bear. And then I get the first shot. It's a 98% of the accomplishment is the guides. Well, I I didn't like it, um, but that but you was... you see my point. Oh, I totally see your point. I, I guess if you're into it for the experience and not the accomplishment. I hunt for both. I told my, I told my I brother that. And the accomplishment. Yeah, I told my brother that, and he was like, oh, I'd be so fucking pissed. And I'm like, well, that's their law. Well, anyways, this guy was... The guy was behind the client. The client shot. The guide was looking through a scope. I guess he was shooting one eye closed. He went to shoot at that brown bear. That guy stood up and went to the left to take another shot. And the guy hit him with a 338 wind mag from the like guy did? right in the back of the head. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Whoa. I've hit deer with a 12 gauge slug in the two, back of the head. Two lives destroyed right there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've seen, you know, we've, we've hit, you know, we, we, when we hunt in Michigan, that's kind of like the way I learned to hunt. And, and I still hunt to this, to this day, 
whatever legal comes through to me, I'm killing it because I'm looking for me. You know, hey, it's fun when you get a big animal that comes through and you like kill it, but I don't care. Like my buddies, they're 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 guiding the elk with me. Uh-huh. So my pro staff are like, do not shoot this spike if it comes through. Is you know, spikes legal though, right? And he's like, Yeah, but you want a lot more meat, you get a lot more meat when he's bigger bulls. My head opportunity, I said, I don't care. If it presents me a shot, I'm taking it because I want 300 pounds of meat, so I don't have to pay for 300 pounds of beef at ooh, 10 bucks a pound right now. You're not gonna get 300 pounds of meat off of a spike. You're not gonna get 300 pounds of meat off of a six point. Well, okay. Well, I know this, but Brian. I know this because I have pack llamas and I have to weigh shit out, so I know what an elk weighs. Now, a spike is going to yield about 150 pounds of boned out meat. Uh, a raghorn is going to be about 200, and a bigger bull is going to be about 250. Last year, I called in a bull, and this guy. Are you shooting Rockies or Rosies? Rocky Mountain. I called okay, in a bull I'm for this I'm dude. Shooting rose, I'm shooting the, rose belts. So Rosies are a lot oh, bigger. Okay. I, I'm going to shut up now because, yeah, I don't, that's not. That's I don't know that much about elk, but I, I do hear about people that hunt on the east side where they have the big antler ones, which those are Rockies. Yeah. We have the smaller antler ones over yeah, here. With the bigger body. body, yes. So like a giant bull, he's saying, can get, you know, 300 pounds of meat or whatever. Oh, so that I was about to tell you this one I called in for this dude last year, and he killed it. It was the biggest elk i've ever seen with my own eyeballs whilst alive and we got 330 pounds of meat off of it oh wow hey that was a rocky you know but yeah every the most i've ever gotten is 250 pounds before well but this thing was it this thing was this it was grotesque how big it was i do know that if you shoot a decent whitetail you get like 30 pounds per meter or whatever. And I always crack up people that go pay $180 to have it processed. Oh, and yeah, I know. So you just so easy to put your own meat. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. part of hunting to me. It's like yeah. I grew up in a family that was a teacher with four kids and a wife. And we didn't have a lot of money. And we learned how to hunt. We learned how to clean our own game, trap, clean our own skins and, and, and sell those. And Hunting to me is you shoot an animal and all the work begins. You got to butcher it up and pack it. And you got, you're fighting the, the clock. You're fighting time. You're fighting freezer space, refrigerator space, because you got to take everything out of the refrigerator because you don't want to freeze it. You know, so that's part of the fun part of oh, hunting. Yeah, 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 you know? man. yeah, 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 I agree. And now that I'm a little bit more older and have a little more disposable income, get like a professional food grinder where I can make sausage and mm-hmm. things like that, that I never mm-hmm. could do before because I couldn't afford a, you know, cause like when I buy stuff, it's like when I buy tools, if I want to use it one time, I go to Harbor Freight and buy, you know, a cheap tool. Mm-hmm. But if I want to use it where I'm going to use it professionally or use it a lot, I go and I buy one of the better brand names, one of the better models. That's the same with like a food processor. Why well, buy 151 that dollar one that you see all these people that, you know, have all these problems in, in three-star reviews on it, or you have, you know, these semi-commercial grade one for, you know, $150 more to $400 more. Why not, if you can afford it, go, go with that. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's, it's like, cracks me up people that put, and I understand this, 
my buddies are like, you know, you, you should put some good glass on that. I'm like, it is a Browning Able and the $300 glass on it right now, I can shoot just fine. I don't need a $2,000 scope on it. So I can see a little bit clearer. I don't shoot that far. Mm -hmm. I'm not shooting at 600 yards where I'm, I'm looking at all these challenges of glass. Now my binoculars, when I'm up, when I'm, you know, I was in brown bear hunting, you're glassing for 18 hours a day. Having really good glass means all the difference in the world on your eye fatigue. And then just yeah. after 10 days of doing that. So I went out, even though I cringe on how much money I had to pay for some Swarovski's, but they were a thousand times better because I was using some, you know, inexpensive loopholes that were like $400. But to me, that was a ton of money. Um, and then the guy let me borrow his um, Swarovski's. And I glassed with those for 10 minutes and I'm like, Oh my gosh, it's just night and day. Oh, I mean, we really? had, we had rings around our, our, we had like calluses around our eyes from having that rubber on your eyes in, in slight little adjustments. You know, you're constantly moving those binoculars and that's all you did. You laid at the bottom of the floor, you had your binoculars on it. You were looking up like a canyon, you know, at the walls where at sea level and we'd spot a bear in the morning. We try to judge it, get spotting scope on it. And then you start your six to eight hour hike to try to get above him and try to get to him before he gets up and starts doing his feeding at like five o'clock in the afternoon. And then hopefully you can come down on him and be able to get a shot. That all sounds, by memory. That sounds like fun. It sounds like all fun. by memory of where you were. Where he was, yeah. And then because you, you, you can't chatter on the radio. You go 100 yards towards him and everything looks different. You can't chatter on the radio and everything's alders and, you know, it's just cool honey. Yeah. But man, good glass. But on 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 my guns, it's like people for me, they've got safes full of guns. I have a 338 Win Mag, that's my elk gun. I have a 375 HH, that's my brownie gun. I have a small nine millimeter that's my concealed wear. I have a 454 Casual, two and a half inch barrel Luskin Ruger Red Hawk. That's my sidearm in the field. Um, I have an AR-10 for cougar hunting here. Every gun has an animal to it, and that's all I need. I'm mm -hmm. not, I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't, I, it's, for me to go to the range and throw a dollar on the ground every few seconds, we're <laughs> shooting those expensive shells um, the way they are now, doesn't make sense to me. I'd rather spend my money on, yeah. on, on something different. And that's I just, don't, I don't even enjoy, I have, I, probably, I have fewer rifles than you. I have three. and. No, I have two. I have two. I have a, well, my bow. I have a big game rifle and a twenty-two. And, okay, but I don't enjoy shooting them. Like, I think of firearms for me. They're an instrument that one uses to slow down animals so that they can cook and eat them. I just I don't like loud booming noises. I don't enjoy going to the range. I'm more of a bow I hunter. You, you bow hunt, right? 90% of my hunting. Okay, so people get frustrated with me that I'm hunting with because I've got a bow that I bought, just like I buy with my guns. I bought it in 2009. It shoots the same as it did in 2009. I had to put a new string on it. I shoot the same arrows. I can shoot in my distance. Of You're shooting. not missing out on anything. What matters is whether or not you can shoot. I know a dude that's a great bow hunter and he shoots a 1986 compound bow 
The freaking pulleys are about as big around as a pop can. Yep. I still have my brown bear bow from 1981 when I bought it. Oh, you'd go kill something with that. I mean, I, yeah, I, I look at it as like, I couldn't believe when I bought the bow in 2009, it cost more expensive than any rifle and scope setup I had. I get a little annoyed when, with like the self-righteousness of the trad bow people. <laughs> Teach their own. It's great that they want to shoot it with the trad bow, but man, they, those people can get so self-righteous about that. It's like my cell phone is five years old. I use my cell phone to call people. You you take good care of your equipment if you could hope. I well, can, it's I like glasses. Keep one of these things for a year and a half without dunking it in the river or, or stepping well, on I, it. Or I learned it from wearing glasses at a younger age. If you broke them, you weren't broke until three years went by and you get the new pair or whatnot. Mm, and because mm-hmm. we didn't have money to to be able to just replace. And now since. Apple and all these other companies make it so that, oh, you should spend another thousand dollars on a phone a year later. It's got these cool things on it. Well, it's like the same software I use. Let's say Photoshop. People are familiar with Photoshop. Mm-hmm. I use like 12 tools in there and I've used those same 12 tools for the last 20 years. I don't use any other tools. It's just, that's all I really need. Right. And they've got, it's like you're, it's like that's not the software that you primarily rely on in your work. I'm imagining. Oh no. The software I work with is all proprietary. Okay. It's all, it's all, but it's like, I like the knife that folds out, right? I don't need 50 other things on there, like a Swiss army knife because it's big and it's bulky and it's got a, just a bunch of, for me, that's just, I like this little simple thing. It's got one purpose. It skins this open and flays off me. Oh, works yeah. great. well, yeah, but a leather man's pretty sweet. Cause you get a pair of pliers, a knife, a saw, a file. Now, Those are all things you use all the time. I almost need a tool belt to carry all that shit. If you were going to have one of each. I carry one of those nice little fold out saws for cutting branches down because the little, little tiny Leatherman, it, it, the little thing, they snap. <laughs> oh no, yeah, I, they do. They do. That is true. That is true. No, I do have a Leatherman. It, it is in my, my back at camp, but it's, you know, for me, I don't, I don't bring a cell phone into the field. I bring, there's one important piece of equipment that's electronic that I bring with me everywhere I go. And it's right here on my pack. And that's a personal, a true personal location beacon. Mm-hmm. 406 signal. And then, um, what's satellite. a 406 signal? I guess that's what the air, the black boxes, you know, when you crash right. your plane. That's our area Four, code here in Montana. Yeah. That's, I think, it, I think it's 406. It's, a. Uh, uh, Hertz thing or something that's basically an emergency channel that they can track and then mm-hmm. satellite. Yeah, I have an in reach. So yeah, so I have an in reach. I leave that back at camp because you can't when you're in shock going into shock, uh, you can't text somebody that telling you're hurt. Oh, I but just, isn't there a isn't there a button on that thing that's like oh shit I'm in trouble like a SOS? Yeah, button? and it'll send a nice test me- message to your wife or whoever, but. I want a button where I hold down a button for one second, just one button, and it sends out emergency, and they're releasing a helicopter within 15 minutes to come to my area. Mm-hmm. That's what I, I look I, at. I, I, I don't. I haven't looked at my inReach. I just bought it last year. The inReach is great I for running. Know, I thought I would assume that they had that capability of just. Yeah, and it sends a 911 text, but what good does that It doesn't really go do? to search and rescue, though? You know what? It might. But the ones that are the true personal location beacons, 
those go in Coast Guard. If you're within 50 miles, Coast Guard coming to you in a chopper in 15 minutes. You have to be federally registered with that and keep that up every two years. It's felony if you misuse it. And if you push that button, you better be in a direct and immediate threat to your life or you are going to get probably pay for the whole thing. I heard a story story recently that, you know how sometimes when you hear a story, you, you can't, you're trying to figure out if you believe it or not. And one thing that sways you towards believing it is that the, there's enough detail in it that it starts to ring true. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. But if it's real vague, you're like, that's bullshit. I heard a story, and it was from somebody I kind of trust, that this kid had an in-reach, but he thought it was an avalanche tracking device. Oh, what? So he, when he would go skiing, he'd hit the button. And search and rescue kept going to these ski resorts, like looking oh. for this person that was in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> and it was this dumbass kid with his, you know, thinking it was his, he was activating his, turning on his. Or whatever. You know, that's, that's, there's another trend that has happened in the last um, 10 years, five years that really bothers me is that we don't get manuals anymore. You get to buy an iPhone. You buy anything technical, and you get to go to a website, and then there, there's your manual. Well, mm-hmm. I just got a, a brand-new Canon camera, um, and I finally got a really super nice professional camera because I've been always using kind of, you know, like a, a decent one, like $1,100 camera, but I wanted a, you know, pro $5,000 camera, but I should have a manual. The manual is 500 pages. And you have to have that on your app or your phone. It's a PDF that you have to download I, online. Yeah, I love the book. So when I'm in camp at night in the tent or whatever, that I can look at this. That's then. That's when you have the time to do it. Yes. All makes, technology now is. You just got to print that son of a bitch off is all you got to do. Well, 450 pages of printing. And and it's going to be these giant pages. I, I want. I love yeah. that because it's a little. It's a little four by five inch yeah. book that, that that they've always had. Now they, you know, I, I guess you. It goes to you know we're saving paper, we're saving the planet, we're you know saving all this stuff. But it's like, well, couldn't I just get the option to buy it? I'll buy it for thirty bucks. But they mm-hmm. sell it online for like sixty from third party stuff, and I'm not putting my credit card number in on some weird website that's selling manuals. And and I'm like, no. You want to buy it directly from the manufacturer, but you can't. They oh, third party yeah. sub that out. Yeah. So, Brian, I'm getting tired. I'm going to let you go. Okay. But uh, well, I, I like I say, we had this real ex- brief exchange where I was like, I'm not going to support your company. And then you convinced me otherwise. And I, well, I, I stand by that. I'm going to. I would, well, I can encourage you to keep it on the. Just like on the level that you're doing it, where it's not. Well, here's 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 my business model: transparency, right? So you know when you're buying something from me, you're getting a complete transparency, not like where it was made, but you see my entire cost. That's in my radical transparency. That's part of me building trust with you, and that's not some BS thing I saw on Shark Tank. That's research that I did and what they were What's doing. Shark Europe. Tank. I guess it's a show that entrepreneurs go on and pitch ideas to billionaires. Oh, I see. Um, but it's something that I think is what, what I'm not hiding anything from you. 
this is the company. This is the source that I got. If you'd like to fact check anything I had, go ahead and do it because I make it in the USA. I do import fabric from Torre. When I use Torre, and if I use one half inch of Torre on a garment, like the garment I'm making right now is a very amendment fabric from Polar Tech, but I'm using the Torre because it's a fantastic fabric to do the zipper guard mm-hmm. and the little around the hood. With that, I have to put made in the USA of import fabric. A lot of people go, he's not making that in the USA. He's, 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 it's like, no, there, there's rules and regulations that I have to follow from the FCC. So transparency is, is a big part of my business model. Um, one of my other business model is I don't advertise. I'm not sitting here trying to compete on Facebook and show all this stuff. I try to have a little Instagram account where I show nothing but my camouflage in the field. I say nothing but like the location, where it's at, what time of year maybe it was or whatnot. I'm trying to show that my camouflage works and all these things. And I do honest, open marketing. You call me, I'll tell you what is good about this product. What is bad? Like my rain gear is going to be guaranteed to be 100% waterproof like everybody else when I get a chance to make it here in a couple of years. I'm going to tell you it's guaranteed 100% the leak. And people are like, mm-hmm. what do you mean? It's because those membranes that are made right now. So you have two different kinds of membranes. I'm not going to get in the membrane, but... If you put 25 pounds of pressure on that membrane, the molecule of the water can now make it through the grid pattern that that polymer is making. That's because of the pressure. It's like, well, that's why your backpack, it feels like where your backpack's on your things, my shoulder seams are leaking. It's like, no, it's being pushed through there. It's being pushed through. And the pants, one guy, you know, at that sportsman show goes, Hey, my long sleeve shirt, which is a beautiful knit. It's designed for moisture wicking. It's quiet. It doesn't have a sheen. It's got, you know, the things that we kind of look for when we're looking for a shirt. It's made in Polar Tech. It's 100% berry amendment. But how's it doing the prickers? I said, you'll destroy it. And here's the reason why, though. So I'm trying to do the whys of it, too. It's like, well, you are gaining comfort and breathability and dead quiet, but you're sacrificing strength because it's a knit. You can only pick a couple things. You can't mm-hmm. have like everybody wants their rain gear. I want it dead quiet. I want it this. I want it that. And I want it that. It doesn't exist. It'll never exist. Mm-hmm. Um, but open and honest marketing to me is huge. I'm not going to, you know, my theory on how camouflage is designed and how I approach it is not like these other companies. We have top scientists. Well, fucking tell us you're top scientists. Well, we have proprietary mathematic algorithms that design our pattern. <laughs> Well, what do you mean? You use Photoshop? You you run a plugin on it? <laughs> or or I love this one from this other company. We have the camouflage that's designed at the optical angle of thirty nine point nine degrees that birds approach, so that you're invisible. <laughs> like, are you fucking serious? <laughs> that's just you know. So I don't want my marketing to be that way. So. <laughs> That's it's just, uh, and no dead. It's just indicative of how little the hunting industry cares about hunters. <laughs> well, I, you know, putting dead animals on my website would be fantastic if I was selling dead animals, but I don't. I sell camouflage, so I only show camouflage. If my pro staff people that pay for my product go out and shoot an animal and have my camouflage on and say, you know, goat skier is a tag and they're showing it on their Instagram. I'm not going to be somebody who goes, no, can't do that. No, and I wouldn't expect that of you. I think that, no, that's the best, that's the best, that's the best that the hunt quietly movement can hope for. So 
with that, I'm going to let you go, but I am, I am so with you. I look forward to, I mean, who knows? I got three or 400 listeners a week at this point, but I look forward to promoting you as a company that flies under the radar and makes good shit. So. Well, if you look at my, my apparel, you won't see a logo on it. Okay. I got the handbag in the back. Yeah. There's little bears. There's little my little bear logo that's kind of hidden in there like watermarks all over the place. But not like I, I made them. So you were sitting in the field like me, a stand hunter, and you're looking at the camouflage and you're like, holy, and you turn it and you're like, that's a, is that a, that's a bear. It's kind of like, well, where's Waldo, you know? So then you start looking at other things and there's all these there. And that's part of my philosophy. I'm not paying you to advertise for me. You are paying me to wear my camouflage. And that's what I want you to have. I want to conceal you. That's my job to try to mm-hmm. do a concealment and then to try to figure out you as a customer, what you like and don't like about it. And then maybe I can improve on that without breaking something else. That's good. Sure. So Awesome. Well, thanks All a lot right. for having me on your show. I appreciate <laughs> thanks, it. Thanks, Brian. I really enjoyed okay. chatting with you. Let's stay in touch. Awesome. Have a great night. You too. Bye. Okay. Cheers.